So Esther chapter 5, I just want to say uh, publicly what I've said privately this week, uh, and that is I am so thankful for Pastor John and his excellent teaching through the first three weeks of uh, our Esther series. The first two weeks were planned. The last week was not planned because uh, we were traveling for, uh, sadly, a death in our family with the passing of Marcia's grandmother. And so I'm super thankful that we have a team of pastors, not just one pastor, uh, who love God, love his word, are able to teach. And John helped introduce us to this invisibly present God as we see throughout the book of Esther. He helps show us that in chapter one, God's hand is invisibly present with the downfall of Queen Vashti, who was deposed from her rule by the injustice of King Ahasuerus. And then God's invisibly present hand raises up Hadassah, which is the Jewish name for the woman who would become known as Queen Esther. But we also saw that God's invisibly present hand was there at the end of chapter 2 when Mordecai, Esther's cousin who took care of her, uh, discovered an assassination plot against the king. But, but then also how that Haman, the, the wicked man in second command under the king, decided to not just take out Haman because he would not bow down and pay homage to him, but he wanted to annihilate all of the Jewish people as the story unfolded in chapter 3. And so as Haman learns this, that he makes an appeal to Queen Esther in chapter 4, that she should go and appeal before the king to save not just Mordecai's life and her own life, but the lives of all of the Jewish people scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And I just want to go back to chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, as we jump into chapter 5 this week. And so chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Mordecai's words to Esther, for if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so Esther has now resolved to risk her life by faith to go before the king and plead with him that he might deliver the Jews from the wicked plan of Haman. So what happens next? This is what we see in chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5 starts by saying this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes 
and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So as we move our way through chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see three major movements in the story, and I want to take them one by one for us today. First, we have the moment of truth. Esther before the king. Ironically, in chapter 1, we saw where Vashti refused to appear before the king, risking her life because she was breaking the laws of the kingdom. Now we have the opposite where Esther is daring her own life because she is going before the king unsummoned. And she's going to appear before King Ahasuerus, which is very difficult to say, by the way, which you might want to just use his Greek name, which maybe you learned in World Civ, which is King Xerxes, all right? Um, So he was ruling over the Persian Empire in this time. And as we look at several details in the text, it's not insignificant that Esther dons her royal robes to go before the king. In fact, this is for the first time in the story, which we will see her referred to again and again throughout the end of the book. She is referred to for the first time as Queen Esther. Perhaps she wore her royal robes not only to remind the king of her beauty, but also to remind her, him of her authority as the queen, that he was the one who chose her for this position in the first place. And thankfully, as we held the tension from last week, if I perish, I perish. The only way that I will not die is if the king holds out his golden scepter and pardons my life. Verse 2 tells us that Queen Esther won favor in the sight of the king. 
the king spared her life. And he goes on to say, what do you want? What is your request? He uses a common expression. He says that whatever you want, even to half of my kingdom, it is yours. That was a common exaggeration to say, ask me whatever you wish. But then in an interesting move that's loaded with political wisdom, Esther, I mean, if, as we're reading the story, we would expect Esther to say, hey, guess what? Haman, your, your guy, second in command, he has proposed that all of my people who now you have chosen as queen, that all of my people are going to be wiped out from the kingdom. And rather than revealing his plan, she actually says, hey, I've prepared a feast a feast that she prepared by faith, right? Because she knew she could have died in that moment. But she prepares a feast and she says, would you invite Haman to join you and me at this feast? But then we encounter another unexpected twist. Rather than then exposing Haman and making her bold request at the feast, she pulls out a delay tactic. She, she says, hey, I'm going to prepare another feast tomorrow, and I want you and Haman to show up again. Now, we don't know exactly why Queen Esther pulled out this delay tactic. Perhaps it was to uh, just honor the customs of the day where uh, in, in oriental customs, there would be an, a building of anticipation at the, 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 the point of a, a major request made of someone. Perhaps Esther in those moments sensed that the timing was not right and that if she bided a little more time, that, that the king would be more favorable to her request. I mean, we don't know for sure, but we know that Esther was being moved by God's leadership in these moments. And so then we ask, what will happen to God's people in exile next? As this suspense is building in this first movement of the story, we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 5 to see what happens next. It says, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither, neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet, be made 
And in the morning, tell the king you to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And so the author zooms back in on one of the main characters, Haman. And we can almost picture him strutting his way out of the palace. I just enjoyed the feast. I got another feast coming tomorrow. And all of the sudden, he sees his arch enemy, Mordecai, who, oh, by the way, if we don't read the text carefully, we recognize that not only in chapter 3 did Mordecai not bow down and pay homage to Haman, but he's continuing to do so even at the threat of his own life in the moment and even though Haman has plotted the annihilation of the Jewish people. So we see a great picture of faithfulness and resolve to honor God, to not bow down to a person because God is the only one we should worship. And in this moment, Haman is filled with such a raging fury that he has to restrain himself. The text implies that in that moment, he wanted to end Mordecai's life. And so he chooses to console himself by not only inviting his wife, but also friends as an incredibly selfish exceedingly arrogant and extremely insecure man would do. And that's by recounting his own greatness. I mean, just just consider if Haman lived today and he were to pull out his cell phone and, and make Instagram posts of his life, okay, we would see Post after post after post after post of, guess who? Haman. His wall would be filled with himself. You would see his Audemars and Bentleys in all of the splendor of his riches. You would see the pictures of his sons securing his lineage, probably so important to Haman so that they could continue the stories of their dad's greatness. And then you would hear about in multiple posts, one after one, just scroll down a little bit and you would see this promotion by the king and then a new promotion by the king. And now he's second in command in the kingdom. And then we can picture him riding home after this feast, and he's making another post on his iPhone 15. Just invited to a feast by the queen, Esther, the beautiful queen, and the the royal king. And oh, by the way, I have an exclusive invitation to tomorrow's feast as well. Hashtag feast on feast. Hashtag feast for days. Hashtag Haman's greatness. We can just imagine everyone knew about Haman's fame because Haman made sure they knew. And we know from reading the scriptures that Haman missed the memo from Proverbs 
27, verse 2, that says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. And yet, in light of how great Haman's life was from an earthly perspective, he was not content. And we find out the reason why in verse 13. Look at this. He says, yet all this, he tells his wife, his friends, is worth nothing to me. Delete the wall. I would, I would rather give all that up if I could just see that Mordecai's life was ended. Haman's life is such a picture of the human heart. And don't think for a moment that your heart is not reflected by Haman's heart. I, I can't think for a moment that I don't see pictures of my heart in Haman's heart. Why is that? Because the human heart is always crying out, never enough. We're never satisfied. We're always wanting more apart from the grace of God saying, Jesus is enough. Jesus is going to ultimately satisfy me. We'll just keep chasing after the next pleasure, the next possession, the next experience, the next accomplishment. And this is what we see in Haman's life. And so to satisfy him, his wife and his friends propose a great idea. Hey, create a gallows, which the text tells us was 75 feet high. It was probably a wooden beam that would be used to impale a person. He wants it to be high. He wants it to be public. He wants everyone to know about his power and to see Mordecai dishonored in the most public way. And so now we have another just point of tension and suspense. Esther was before the queen. The, the queen was before the king, and she could have spared not only her life, but Mordecai's life. And now all of a sudden, Mordecai and Haman have this encounter, and it seems that Mordecai is going to die the next morning. But in chapter 6, we have the greatest turning point of the entire book. Chapters 1 through 5 build to this moment where chapters 6 through 10 are going to be this amazing reversal and turning point in the story of Esther, Mordecai, Haman, King Ahasuerus, and the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Look at what the author tells us. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithena and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. 
And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and rather than him speaking, the king speaks. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to the king, for the man, wait, sorry, let me say this. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and let a horse that the king has ridden be brought, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then the wise man and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Here again, we have the turning point of the story. The king, rather than giving significant honor once again to Mordecai, Honor, I mean, sorry, to Haman honors Mordecai instead. We, we see that how this chapter is absolutely loaded with intrigue and drama. This, this book, Esther, is a literary masterpiece. I'm going to help us see that more in the coming weeks. But we see how it's loaded with irony and drama and this great reversal that we see throughout chapter 6. First, we see that the king can't sleep. And so to help him sleep, he calls in one of his servants to pick up the book of memorable deeds. Now, perhaps this is like Haman. He wants to hear about his own greatness. But I tend to think like others that this is probably because reading the chronicles and the book of memorable deeds was more helpful to get a person to sleep than 500 milligrams of melatonin, all right? So it's just like very dry, very uh, drab reading. And so the king is probably just trying to go to sleep. So he's like, give me something to sleep. You know, you just read at night and sometimes it helps you go to sleep. And as he's reading, the servant comes to a page that talks about Mordecai saving the king's life. And as we study the book of Esther, we would see that this 
this instance happened five years earlier. And so the king's kind of running back in his mind and saying, like, okay, yeah, that, that's amazing. He saved my life. What, what do we do to honor him? What, what distinction did we give him? And to the king's surprise, this would have su- surprised and shocked him because kings in that day would go out of their way to honor those that did them good deeds. Part of it was to boost morale in the kingdom. Others was, was a, a way of, of kind of showing their own uh, greatness. And, and the servant says, nothing has been done. And so the king begins to calculate and think about ways that he can honor the king. And just as he, uh, honor Mordecai, and just as he's doing that, he hears these footsteps in the court. And they're the footsteps of Haman. And so in walks Haman with his plan to take out Mordecai's life. But as soon as he walks in, before he can speak, the king says, what honor or distinction should be given to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, being the narcissistic individual that he is, thinks to himself, self, he must be talking about you. And so Haman comes up with this plan suited to his own vanity. And he says, hey, bring in the royal robes for this man and bring in the royal horse and put a crown on his head. And oh, by the way, get your most important person in your kingdom to lead him through the city square as thousands upon thousands of people hear that this is the man who the king delights to honor. And after Haman wakes up from his daydream, he's perplexed and pierced to the heart to say, go and do so for Mordecai the Jew. This same Mordecai the Jew that Haman spoke of in verse 13 of chapter 5 that says, I want nothing except to see his life removed. It's not surprising, but very intentional by the author that we see Mordecai mentioned as Mordecai the Jew by Haman when he wants to end his life and Mordecai the Jew when the king wants to honor his life. This is an amazing, unbelievable reversal of events. This is the turning point in the entire story. And so as we consider this this turning point and the God of reversal, we have to ask ourselves, what does this story teach us about who God is and our own story as well? I want you to see three truths about the God of of reversal from Esther 5 and 6. Number one, the first thing that we see here about the God of reversal is that God turns ordinary moments for his extraordinary purposes. God turns, he reverses ordinary moments for his extraordinary purposes. We see all kinds of ordinary moments in Esther 5 and 6. We, we saw in chapter 5 of, uh, of verse 9 of chapter 5 where uh, Haman is just walking out of the palace. 
like he might do on any night. And here he stumbles into his enemy, Mordecai, and thus goes on to plan his immediate death. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, we saw on this fateful night to Mordecai, it just so happens that the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that the king says, hey, go get that book. I mean, he had a lot of options as the king, you know, like he could have chosen a lot of things for his servants to do to help him sleep. And then he says, go get that book. And it just so happens that the servant opens up to the page about Mordecai and how he rescued the king's life. And not only that, as the king is trying to figure out how to honor Mordecai the Jew, it just so happens that Haman is coming into the court at that very moment. All of these acts from not being able to sleep to a simple decision-making process. Listen, all of them, if there were just even one of them, we could see the invisible hand of God working providentially behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. But you add them all up and God's presence is unmistakable in the book of Esther. God is the God who is always present, and he loves to turn ordinary moments for his extraordinary purposes. We're going to see this explicit in the language of chapter 9, where in verse 1 it talks about reversal, and in verse 22 it talks about a turning that happens. And so this is good news for us. This infuses our lives with hope and expectation that in Christ, there are no ordinary moments that, that even though it may seem ordinary, that God may just be at work when one day we look back and we said, oh, that was a divine appointment. That was a divine opportunity. That was a divine conversation that God was at work, taking these ordinary moments of November 22nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, and he was working some amazing purposes out in my life and for his name's sake. God is the God who turns ordinary moments for his extraordinary purposes. But then, number two, we see in dramatic fashion how God humbles the proud and honors the humble. God humbles the proud, but he honors the humble. This story reminds us of James 4, 6, which tells us God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you make yourself high, God has a great ability to make you low, either in this life or in the life to come, most certainly in the life to come. But if you will humble yourself before God, and if you will make yourself low before him, he has an incredible ability to exalt you and honor you and make you high. We see in Haman that he displays such a haughty, arrogant, prideful spirit. Haman's life is a, a clear picture of Proverbs 16, 18 that says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. 
And listen, it's, it's easy for us to make fun of Haman's pride, right? I mean, he is like, he is an easy target in his abject pride. But once again, we need to look at our own hearts for, as I learned about 12 years ago from an old book written in the 19th century, pride is a protean evil. You say, well, Pastor Tanner, what does protean mean? I mean, maybe only a few of our, you know, literary scholars even have a clue what I'm talking about. And I had to, when I read it, I had to go look it up. Protean, what is that? Well, proteus was the Greek god of the sea. And he had an ability to change form at command. He could change into any form at the drop of a hat. And this is how pride works in our life. It shows up anywhere, any day of the week in our hearts. Think about it. When something great happens through your life, there's that temptation to like, hey, look at me. I mean, I'm pretty great. I'm, you know, like, oh yeah, God, maybe there's a little bit of my life, but you know, I like to work so hard and, you know, I studied so much and, you know, look at these degrees on the wall and, you know, yeah, I got that promotion because I've done so much. And, and yet, on the flip side, when something goes great for someone else, we're not saying, look at me, we're saying what? What about me? And in both cases, the elevation of self is at work. Pride is a protean evil. It shows up all over the place in our lives. So we have to guard against pride surfacing. We need to remember that God opposes the proud, but yes, he gives grace to the humble. God loves to honor the humble heart. I want to give you one more verse that I hope you will write down today, whether you're in the room, watching online, highlight it, underline it, write it, meditate on it through the week this week, and that is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, where God sends word to Samuel, and he says, I'm sorry, Eli, and he says to Eli, For those who honor me, I will honor. And for those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Those who honor me, I will honor. If you honor God with your life, God will honor you. It's a promise right here from his word that he has spoken. If you honor God, God will honor you. And we see Mordecai and Esther honoring God in so many ways throughout this book. How did they seek God's honor? Well, number one, they sought God's honor by seeking God himself. Listen, God impressed this on my heart again in a conversation with a friend this week. And it was just so empowering and and even freeing. Listen, seeking God is honoring to God. You might want to write that down. Seeking God is honoring to God. You say, why is that, Pastor Tanner? Well, for three days, they fasted. They forsook food and they prayed. So while 
Haman in his pride is recounting his greatness. Where, where, is, where is Mordecai? He's on his face. He's praying to the God of heaven. He's still getting the ashes off his head because he's saying, God, I'm depending on you. To pray to God is to honor God because we're saying, God, I need you in these moments. To fast, to give up food in order to seek more of God, to seek God's provision in a given situation. Maybe an answer that you're wrestling with is to honor God, to say, God, you have the answers. My life is utterly dependent upon you. To open this book is to honor God. To seek God in his word is to honor him. Because when we open this book with a heart that is in love with Jesus, what we are saying is, God, you are honored because your voice is the most important voice in my life. To sing songs of praise to God, which we love to do at Redemption Hill, is a way to honor God because we're saying, God, you are honored because no one is greater, nothing is better than you in our lives. And to take bold risks of faith like Mordecai and Esther do is to say, God, you are so valuable to me that I would rather to obey you than live if it means I lose my life. Seeking God is honoring to God. When we seek him, he moves us. Listen, this is such a, a, a strong connection that we have to see about prayer and fasting and seeking God is that prayer and fasting, when, when, we're, when our hearts are fully engaged, they will lead us to, they will, action and obedience, which as Pastor John so helpfully showed us last week, may mean risks in our life. Often it will, but we do so gladly by faith. And so as we honor God, God says, listen to this, don't miss this. God says, I see you, I love you, and I honor you. I don't know where you may be carrying shame in your life today. I don't know the details of your story that make you want to go and run and hide, but I know my own heart and the human heart well enough to know that even if there's not something like that right now, there is something in your past that if it were exposed to the world, it would bring such great shame to you. You would want no one to know about it. We would go run and hide like Haman does at the end of chapter 6. But because of the great love of Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death on the cross and through the greatest reversal ever in the history of the world, his resurrection from the dead, now we can be brought back into a relationship with God where God says, now you are my adopted son and my adopted daughter which means you are royalty. The royal robes belong to you. The royal horse is yours. The royal crown is on your head. 
you are paraded around because I delight to honor you. Listen, God loves you like that. And I know it's hard to believe because we know how jacked up our hearts are. But God is saying, you are that precious to me and nothing on earth can separate you from my love. Nothing can dishonor you eternally because I have said you are honored in my presence. Those who honor me, I will honor. And then number three, quickly but too important not to share. God turns man's glory into a platform for his glory. Throughout the book of Esther, Haman and King Ahasuerus flaunt their earthly glory and fame, but the king of kings is working to ultimately write the story where he ultimately gets the glory. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, the king's heart, any king, any leader, any current president, any future president, their hearts are like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is the main character in the book of Esther. God is the hero of this story. And God is the hero that we can hope in today which is what I want to call us to from these two chapters. Hope in the God of resurrection who writes writes your story for his glory. Hope in the God of reversal. As he writes, that's intentional language, he is writing your story. And he's writing your story for his name, for his glory. And so listen, I know it may be a difficult chapter right now. I I know that maybe the, the most recent paragraphs aren't super great. You're not super proud of. Listen, but your story is not over. God is writing your story. God is writing our story. And his stories are the best stories. Never discount or devalue the story of God. In anyone's life, you have a great story. Maybe someone just needs to hear it. Your story is great. You may not think it's great. Your story is great if your story is in Christ. You may feel like your story is, 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 is worth ending and, and that, that no one cares about your story, but God is saying, your story isn't over. I'm writing your story. I care about your story. Even when people stand ready to accuse us, they will ultimately bow before our advocate, Jesus Christ, who won our honor, who won our new identity as royalty before our God. And so as you consider your own story, Let me share the words of C.S. Lewis at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. In the last book, he talks about the, 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 the children standing before King Aslan, who points us to King Jesus, the greater king. And he talks about their story and the story coming to the, a close. And, and this is what he says. It says, and as he spoke Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion 
But the things that had began to happen after they were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. King of kings, we thank you. King who delights to honor us, which absolutely blows our minds and hearts today. God, we thank you. That you not only reverse the fortunes of the Jewish people, Esther and Mordecai, several hundred years before Jesus came on the scene, but you do your same work of reversal in our lives today and most importantly for us, for our lives for eternity. And so God, would you help us to hope in you no matter what we're experiencing, no matter where we feel shame, no matter how difficult life is, no matter how much we've messed up before you or before other people, God, would you remind us that your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness are wider and deeper than the oceans and that you are still writing your story in our lives. God, may that change the way we live before you. May that change the way we live before others. May that change the way that we go to bed tonight and sleep well and then wake up tomorrow with an energy and a passion to honor you again. Oh God, you are so good. We're so thankful that you've promised to honor those who honor you because God, you don't have to do that. You deserve all the honor anyway. If you never honored us, we should give our entire lives for your honor. And yet you say, I will honor you in return. So God, we're humbled, we're grateful, we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.